In the UK, the Labour Party has suffered what it described as a shattering defeat, losing a by-election in the northern city of Hartlepool by nearly 7,000 votes to the Conservatives. Jill Mortimer will be pleased as she became the first Conservative to win the constituency since it was set up in 1974. But what does all of this mean for the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, and the left that's been left behind? And we'll be checking in with our man in the Big Apple, Henry Rees Sheridan, who's prattling on about plastic bags and perhaps a more serious point about how the pandemic is affecting the environment. Plus, as Washingtonian Media's CEO, Kathy Merrill, weighs in on the importance of offices, we'll be discussing the way to work and the advantages of having an office culture. Spoiler alert, we're not remotely interested. Monocle's editors tackle these topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 7th of May and I'm Josh Fennett here in London and joining me in studio for a momentous edition of the late edition are our esteemed editor Andrew Tuck and our head of radio Tom Edwards. Welcome both. It's been a busy week as Monocle's fast-moving transport-themed June issue races towards the printers. Have you been enjoying the ride, Andrew? Uh... It's taking too long. <laughs> it's always tough sending a magazine, and we're just—it's—it's uh, it's interesting. We, we have a, a series of uh, of products going out the door over the next few weeks. So let's just say you have to kind of hold your breath a little bit and see how we get through it all. It's something of a sad day, but also I think an interesting day to look forward today, Tom, because it's actually the last edition of the late edition in this format as we await um, something sparkly, spangling and new. Well, yeah, and long-term listeners to Monocle 24 will no doubt often hark back to the halcyon days of the Monocle Daily, and I can tell them, and this has been published in some other platforms, that the Monocle Daily is soon to return. So the exciting evening show on Monocle 24 will no longer be the late edition. It will be the Monocle Daily from next month. So there's a a brief... uh, A curious interregnum. A a curious interregnum, a brief intermission uh, before that old friend comes back. Now, people might say, are we going to hear from the likes of Andrew Muller, if not nightly, but quite often? Yes, just like in the good old days. But are we going to be entertained, stimulated, in new and previously unimaginable ways also yes <laughs> so it's going to be like seeing an old friend but who's done something crazy maybe a new haircut or something like that so the familiar and the innovative and it's coming soon andrew muller is both old and has a new haircut so uh, you've given away you've given away the he's uh, really there. i don't know how innovative he is he still dresses like some sort of strange 1950s australian cowboy however the man can present a topical news program so uh, he'll be let loose on it most evenings can't he just Andrew you looking forward to a couple of late nights in the office I can't wait to be stimulated by Andrew Miller that sounds (laughs) that sounds uh, a threat (laughs) (laughs) Um, moving hastily on we're going to start proceedings with some politics from right here in the UK and a somewhat parochial story by Monocle Standards but bear with us it's a by-election result in the city of Hartlepool UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has talked about erecting a blue wall of Conservative seats in the former Labour heartland in the north of England. And despite some misgivings about his leadership, an election on Thursday seems to confirm a swing in opinion towards his party. Jill Mortimer, also a farmer, it says here in the script, becomes Hartlepool's first ever Conservative MP and the city's first female representative to boot. 
To set this story up a little, let's listen to Katie Ball. She's the deputy politics editor at The Spectator. She chatted to us earlier on The Globalist this morning. I think we have to bear in mind that if you look at the 2019 election results, ultimately Labour did hold that, but the Brexit party took a large share of the vote. Now, and and there was a debate at the time, if you remember, between Brexit Party wanted the Conservatives to stand down their candidate in Hartlepool because they thought that way the Brexit Party would definitely win it. Neither side would stand down. Labour went through the middle. Um, but not all Brexit Party votes, uh, you know, second choice Conservative votes. And I think the fact that the Tories have won a seat that has never been Tory, has never gone blue, is clearly a sign that they are uh, not just solidifying uh, in terms of their red wall gains, but expanding. Um, I think it is one of those seats, however, that in a way, it, although it is a historic moment for the Tory party, you can see on paper how it might have come together with the current trends. Katie Balls of The Spectator there speaking to us on Monocle 24 a little earlier. And I've just had a text from Brenda in the northeast who reliably informs me that Hartlepool is a town rather than a city. So I'm extremely sorry for saying that. Um, Andrew, as important as each of the 650 seats in the Commons are, this story is really a bit of a temperature check on the opposition party, the Labour Party here in the UK. What does this crushing defeat by the party's own admission, a shattering defeat at the polls, mean for their leader, Keir Starmer? Well, we'll have to wait and see because it's a strange thing that the vaccination programme in the UK is delivering dividends. And so what's happening is you know, the, the economy is opening up. It's not exactly the greatest of weather, but people are outside eating again in restaurants. And, and in just over a week's time, you can go back indoors in bars and restaurants and the numbers are not going up. The infection rates are not going up as this happens. So there's a, a sense that we're on the cusp of returning to something that looks like normality. And that is the dominant feeling, I think, in, 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 for people. It's like we're, we're doing well. We're, we're doing better than many of our, our European neighbours with vaccinations. Things are going well. And for good or bad, it's the, the responsibility for that is pinned to one person, to Boris Johnson. Now, when things were going badly, uh, when you saw terrible numbers at the beginning of the year, he, he, his ratings dipped and his ratings have risen as the vaccination programme has been a success. So that is the, the top note, as it were, that has you know, persuaded people, I think, a little bit how to vote. But that's not to deny the fact that I think Keir Starmer has, has not got the kind of cut through that you would imagine. Again, when there were terrible numbers during this pandemic, there were times when Labour was neck and neck with the Tories, even times when I think Keir Starmer was ahead of um, Boris Johnson in, in popularity. But that has fallen away as this vaccine programme has moved on. And I think also it, what, what's happened is you know, that the, the Brexit stuff, which is miserable, has been drowned out by the vac vac vaccine um, story. And the other strange thing is, though, that none of the, the kind of the, the stories of recent weeks about gold wallpaper, the doing up of 10 Downing Street, the, you know, the, the, the boho chic kind of makeover of the place has stuck. It, it doesn't seem to have hurt them. Which is key for wallpaper. <laughs> it's got to stay up. No matter, no, ma no matter what you're paying for it. Tom, uh, resisting the urge to draw parallels between ineffectual leader Keir Starmer and yourself, uh, I want to talk about Boris Johnson. Um, he's been buffeted by allegations of sleaze, calls for an inquiry into his handling of the pandemic, and subject to much scrutiny and derision, as much almost as any political figure in all of history, I would wager. Um, but does this kind of indirect endorsement of him and his party 
show that there is a, a, a big diversity of opinion that's not, not really represented always in the newspapers. Yeah, I think it does show that. But I, I think it also describes something which is probably more alarming almost for Keir Starmer and his inner circle, which is that I think there's a little bit of a, a separation in the public mind or in certain parts of the public between Boris the personality versus Keir Starmer the personality and that kind of... Westminster Village dynamic, which again, it was different, but there was the same kind of thing when we had Jeremy Corbyn leading the opposition in this country, um, with the sort of more quotidian local political matters. I wonder whether the success of the Tories in Hartlepool isn't that much to do with an endorsement for Johnson, uh, but rather a broader, um, you know, temperature take, like Andrew's saying, on the state of the nation in a more general way. And I think that's probably more alarming for, for Starmer. The difficulty for Labour is, what do they do? Obviously, Corbyn was a, was a bit of a disaster uh, at the ballot box. He had this sort of one allegedly successful uh, election campaign um, when they, they, made, still lost. they made some gains, but they still lost handily. Um, but obviously, he was a darling of this much more uh, radical, traditional sort of socialist wing of the party. And the clamour from that, lobby will grow now that Starmer's out of touch and he's too Blairite, etc. But ultimately, you know, Labour have electoral success, big general election success, when they can pull together not just, you know, their traditional Labour base, the unions, uh, the north of England, the big industrial centres, but when they can capture the broader public and, and represent this sort of this sort of broader church. They've only done it a couple of times, obviously, immediately post-World uh, War II when there was a very specific set of circumstances. And then most kind of atypically in the late 90s with, with, with New Labour. And so the answer for Labour to address this, what can I understand look like a bit of a term, terminal decline, is probably just to weather it see out this bounce from, you know, the the, the, the good uh, vaccine rollout, etc., and and consolidate under Starmer. But it's going to take quite a long time. I think Starmer's aware of that. I don't think he's troubled by that project, but I think he will be troubled, as will his, his, his advisors, by, for example, the tone in the left-leaning press, which has been pretty dire for him in response to the, the local elections. On the subject of decisions made in Hartlepool, I want to lean away from politics and towards the almost certainly apocryphal tale of how the town got its mascot. Are you familiar with this? I am, and it's not that is true. It's definitely true. So, Andrew, are you familiar with that? Uh, not at all. So, apparently, a ship many hundreds of years ago landed in Hartlepool, and the only soul aboard was a, a small monkey dressed in a French army uniform. Um, and this monkey was then dutifully hung in the town centre as a Frenchman the people of Hartlepool never having met a Frenchman before, which means that the town's football team has a mascot called Hangus the Monkey. Oh, my God. How good is that? That's all, that's all, as far as I'm concerned, that's all true, completely true. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be watching my uh, phone for another text from Brenda from the North East <laughs> correcting me on that story. But um, it's the last edition of the late edition, so I thought, wait, hey, we'll throw a little whimsy in there. Um, and, uh, you know, fighting with the French is in the news as well, so that's fine. Um, next up, we're checking in with our New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. This week, he's been rummaging around on his desk for ideas to come up with something suitably noisy, disposable and capacious upon which he can base his uh, report. This week, he's delving into the politics of plastic bags. Take it away, Henry. Affixed to the back of a cupboard door in my kitchen is a semi-cylindrical plastic cage. This is meant to contain my shopping bags. 
There's a big hole in the cage through which bags can be both stuffed in and pulled out like big tissues out of a big tissue box. The plastic cage contains some of my bags, but not all of my bags. Dozens of disposable shopping bags have overspilled the plastic cage and float freely in the cupboard. There's also a whole shelf in a different cupboard taken up with reusable canvas shopping bags. It's a sickening glut of bags. I don't know what's going to happen to them. Almost certainly most of them will outlast me. I am, after all, 100% biodegradable, which is more than you can say for most of the bags. Anyway, the point is that I've got as much baggage as the next person. I'm disclosing this because I don't want you to think that the bag bashing that's about to ensue is coming from a place of sanctimony. Like most cities in the rich world New York has, over the course of the past half century, developed an addiction to plastic bags. But while most cities have done their best to suppress and ignore this shameful dependency, New York has elevated its plastic bags to the status of cultural icon. One New York bag in particular has garnered outsized fame. You've probably seen it in person or on screen. It's white and it has text on it that says, Thank you. 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 The thank yous are stacked, forming a typographic column of gratitude. All of the thank yous are written in chunky all caps. The letters that make up the top three thank yous and the bottom three thank yous are merely red outlines. But the letters that make up the middle thank you are solid red. It's unclear why this design is so compelling, but it's really captured people's imaginations. It spawned a thousand parodies and imitations, including a reusable shopping bag that replicates the design of the original disposable one. There are several other famous and beloved New York plastic bag designs. Quite how beloved they are was revealed last year, in the weeks leading up to a plastic bag ban meant to take effect across the state on March 1st. What can only be described as bag fever took hold. Even the impeccably liberal New York Times, who you would expect to be a natural enemy of the plastic bag, couldn't suppress a deeply rooted and provincial bag supremacism. On February 28th, a day before the bag ban was scheduled to come into effect, the Times ran a lavishly illustrated obituary of sorts for the, quote, many plastic bags of New York, unquote. It featured high-definition portraits of the most famous bag designs. The plastic bag ban came into effect on March 1st as planned, but enforcement of it was held up because a trade group called the Bodega and Small Business Association sued the state on the grounds that the ban was unconstitutional. Then the pandemic happened. The courts became short-staffed. Progress on the lawsuit slowed to a crawl. It was only in August of last year that the state Supreme Court struck down the lawsuit. Enforcement of the bag ban was rescheduled to begin in October of last year. 
But then this week, The City, a local news website, reported that in the six months since then, not a single fine has been given out for violations of the ban. This is despite documented cases of shops continuing to give out plastic bags. The reluctance to enforce the law is understandable. New York's small grocers have been hammered by the pandemic. The last thing state officials want to do is make their recovery harder by issuing fines of up to $500 for issuing plastic bags. Aside from this, it's probably fair to say that enforcing a plastic bag ban isn't at the top of the state's agenda at this particular historical juncture. It's easy to dismiss plastic bags as a trivial issue, but the fate of the plastic bag ban is symptomatic of a more concerning trend. In New York, as elsewhere, when the going gets tough, policies designed to protect the environment are often the first to go out the window. Electronic waste and composting programmes were among the first to go when New York was slashing its budget last year, although the composting budget was later reinstated. There's a sense that environmental policies are a luxury that can be dispensed with in the face of a real challenge. But soon the real challenges themselves will be caused by environmental change. It would be a shame if we have to wait until then for environmental policies to be bumped a little bit higher up the list of priorities. That was our New York City reporter, Henry Rees Sheridan. Interesting fact, during his time working here with us in London as a producer come human emu, um, Henry told me that he once grievously injured his hand undertaking a bout of bin diving, an activity undertaken by various 'er ne'er-do-wells who forage for recently binned food from supermarkets. But don't let that colour your opinion (laughs) of him, listeners. Um, Andrew, Henry made a point, it says here, um, about the pandemic and the environment, um, it seems as if emissions subsided uh, and people just began to take the climate more seriously as a topic during the pandemic when many people were at home, fewer people were on public transport, and it felt like there was some way in which we could take control of things. Do you think there's been a bit of a, a slide back on that as the world kind of gears up again? No, I don't actually. I think what's interesting is that lots of quite big decisions were taken almost while we weren't looking, certainly at the kind of... The, the civic level, whether that's you know putting in what was billed as often as you know as temporary bike lanes, they're not going anywhere. You know they're they're going to be permanent. The the, the manoeuvring of people to encourage them to walk more rather than get on public transport. I think people have picked up habits over the last eighteen months. Some people will lose them, but I I think there is a a, a shift to a, a more gentle urban mobility that will be encouraged at every level. And you just see the money that you know governments uh, are now putting behind trying to get us to be a bit greener and cleaner with our with our transport, with our homes, and how we insulate them, for example. There's there's a lot of money slewing around because it's going to get competitive in in coming years as as economies you know, square up to each other to see who is producing the best technology to deliver the kind of things that we need to stop climate change. So I've, I've got a feeling it's, it's, you're, you're going to be slightly just swept along by it now without having to think about it. It's going to become just part and parcel of, of every decision that is made at every level. People will be asking the same questions. Is it going to help us deliver on our, on our, on our climate targets? And is it sustainable? Great. And Tom, we were talking about British politics earlier and I wanted to talk about 
the fact that Boris Johnson has uh, made uh, one of his plays about the UK's future as being a leader in the climate debate. He's accepted some recommendations that are going to see uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the UK cut by 78% by 2035. And there are international talks being hosted in Glasgow later in November, um, in which the UK will be at the table when some of these decisions are being made. On the kind of global front, is this quite a good place to be as well, being one of the lead introducers or people that chair some of these discussions? Because as Andrew said, the debates around climate change have become a lot more uh, concrete, I suppose, over the past year. Yeah, I think I think there's an opportunity for this new, more specialised and focused post-Brexit Britain to be in the vanguard when it comes to you know, a meaningful conversation around sustainability. And this is not to uh, endorse, you know, governmental level kind of greenwashing or whatever you want to call it, but it needs to have some substance behind it. And interestingly, you know, I think what's what Joe Biden has done and is doing in the US is instructive for politics in this country on several reasons, on several levels, one of which is about sustainability. You know, Biden was unashamedly interested in putting that front and centre. And he's delivered. He's moved quickly on that, actually. And he's got quite good response across the political spectrum, staggeringly, even in the United States. And I think there's learnings for, for Johnson and other Western leaders on that side of things. But also just to this broader point, which actually was kind of part of this problem that Keir Starmer has, this this issue of how you can occupy the, the centre or left centre ground generally uh, with authority, um, without sort of being seen to, or literally losing your kind of more nationalist-leaning base. Biden's showing pretty adroitly how to do that, which is not that surprising if you consider he's a canny political operator. But it is in some ways, because he's rather a quiet man, he's a bit older, etc. So there are quite a few learnings, I think, around how to incorporate climate change and sustainability into your discourse and also how you actually operate politically that Johnson in particular will be well served to follow but actually a number of other leaders and you think about the incumbents in Berlin or in Paris would be reasonably well served to to pay note to. And finally on the show uh, we're going to change tack a little bit and we're going to have a discussion uh, about an opinion piece that caught our producer's eye. Kathy Merrill is the CEO of Washingtonian Media which publishes the 55-year-old Washingtonian magazine and she composed an op-ed in the Washington Post. Have I said Washington enough? Uh, she's flagging up her concerns about the future of office culture in a world of remote working. One of the things she highlights is the idea of serendipitous interactions, a shared and unspoken culture and how creating such things on a backlit screen is a bit of a hiding to nothing. Andrew, um, you've read Kathy Merrill's piece. Did her opinion chime with you? Uh, you know, what have we learned about the importance of the office over a year when, you know, we ourselves in the office we're sitting in have been part of this grand experiment? I think we've learned that you, you don't just go to work to do work. It's not, it's not just a place of, of, of toil and manufacture. It's all the bits in between. And as she talks about serendipity, in fact, I've, I've tried to pick, not because I'd read her column, I must say, I did not steal her idea, I guarantee, but I've tried to pick up on a few of the things that happened in our office this week in, in the column for the Monocle Weekend edition uh, tomorrow. And there, there were moments when I thought you, you had to be present to, to experience them and understand them and, and why they were important. So the, we've done this new book, the Monocle Book of Homes, it came in, you know, to see Sam Brogan, who's the designer of that, a young guy, super talented, but to see the pride in his face when he was holding that book, you know, so so offices are about celebration as well. They're they're marking moments in the day. You know, we we work at 
an incredible pace and speed with a, a demand for accuracy. And you know, we, we know because we tried to do this, being at home, sending emails all day about, can you change this? Can you change that? It all got horribly confusing. Here in an office, you know, the number of times I've been over to our chief sub's desk this week just to say, okay, what, what I'd like here is, can we just, do, and do you think this, and you know, and suddenly all sorts of things happen in, 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 in a miracle way because you just couldn't do those things at home. And I think you also look across the room and you see when people are kind of buckling a bit under too much work or when you think actually somebody m- might benefit from a, a, a walk around the block. And, and so you, all those things you just don't get in the office. And, you know, you know, for the people who are here, there is, there is a, you know, a sense of camaraderie that kind of gets you through. And, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's, it's you know, people endlessly bang on about how, you know, the office is dead and how they're going to be working from home in the future and they'll never go to work ever again. Fine, but let's, let's see where you're in three years' time, whether your career's still in a, in a good shape or if the people who were once your contemporaries are now your bosses. Tom, unlike Andrew, uh, you've actually spent many years uh, fostering a culture of, of fear and seething resentment <laughs> um, at Monocle 24, though admittedly we did all have a rather nice socially distanced uh, staff lunch today, which is a lovely thing for a company to provide. Um, how hard is it to create this sense of camaraderie remotely? Because I know that the radio team certainly... I had to navigate things a little bit differently. You you do need someone uh, like Steph there behind the glass driving the desk. It's not something you can do remotely. Well, yeah, in a, in, a, in a way, that makes these decisions a lot easier because you can't procrastinate or prevaricate because, you know, the, the show the show quite literally must go on if you're running a newsroom you know it's a 24/7 or stop for a month to be replaced by a different show <laughs> exactly in that case um so in in a strange way that gives you the advantage of uh it provides an imperative it's a necessity so it it kind of makes the decision making process more more elegant but i think what's interesting about the op-ed piece that we we're talking about and and andrew's um insights into it as well is this idea that you almost need to spin the situation around and not look at you know what does the company get and what does the company ask? But I think it's for, you know, colleagues, employees, whatever you want to call them, to think about, you know, n- not not being left behind. And, it, you know, it's a lot easier to participate in a, a dynamic in an office if you're face-to-face. It's a lot easier to impress somebody. It's a lot easier to ask for advice. And I think there will be, and I think she, she made this point elegantly, that, you know, you, you you will not be able to complain about being somewhat left behind uh, if you've been kind of kind of absent. Now, this is not to say that one size fits all and it's an easy fix. As Andrew said, it's very complex and everybody needs to be flexible. And that's one of the great things I think about the last 18 months is that everybody has been demonstrably more flexible in their working uh, practices. And that's actually a really, a really good thing going forwards. Um, but yeah, the, the stakes are too high. And hopefully, as... Uh, bars and restaurants open up as as society becomes a bit more as it begins to resemble a little more what it looked like before it'll be a lot easier for people to to get over any kind of reservations they had get over that hump and get back uh, get back in the office because i just think it makes life a lot better the, the fact <laughs> is you have to kind of recognize people's concerns and you know and and not everybody can move at the same pace you know, we're still at a situation in the uk where you know we want people to be in the office, but when there hasn't been the call out that you must go back to the office from from the government, and that may not happen uh, until I don't know, maybe June, July. I was going to say, do you, do you think that'll ever happen? Then surely they'll say it's safe to go back, but they'll never say you should go back. 
No, but the the the, the, the restrictions and and the language around it will change. And you see, there was a report this week saying that when you look at the, the most of the big companies, you know, the, the properly you know, bigger players who are revealing what their, their policy is going to be going forward, it is this kind of mix and match things where it's going to be, can you do two days at home and three days in the office? But again, that's fine. But, but you have to think, are they doing it for your benefit, even if they dress it up as that? Or is it just that they'll rent less kind of office space and they're going to reduce their overheads? So I don't always believe it's being done for the, for the good of the employee. And, you know, and this, this other thing that she brings up, which is interesting, is you know, that on a, on a Zoom meeting, you feel that you've had a, a complete experience. But what is going to happen more and more as you have people h- half at home on Zoom and half in the office on Zoom is when pe- they shut their, their computers, the group in the office, there will be that thing of, that was great. I didn't kind of want to say it on the Zoom call. Can I just ask you one thing? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's oddly the point that the decision gets made. And that's the bit that you, you, know, you, you can't then say, oh, let's get everyone back on, up on Zoom. I'll just, just say that one more sentence because that doesn't happen. And because we've run a little long, and I can imagine our producer sat in Milan jabbing himself in the leg with a compass, that's all for today's late edition. A big thank you to Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards with me in studio at Midori House in London. Today's studio manager was Steph Chungu, and our producer in Milan with the sore leg was Ed Stocker. And don't forget, that's not only it for today. That's it for the late edition for now. Anyway, stay tuned for our much-anticipated return of the bigger, better, stronger, faster flagship, The Daily, on TKTKTK. Tom, when's it happening? It'll be back on the 7th of June. Watch this space or listen to this space if such a thing is possible, Josh. (laughs) But for now, from me, Josh Fennett, from the late edition, and why the hell not, from the whole monocle flying circus, have a lovely weekend. Over and out.